Hellfire consumes the homes and land as a heavy smoke lingers in the air, hovering over a koi like a death shroud. The cries of black men, women, and children are muffled by the blazes set by white mobs as they flee from the men with guns who won't hesitate to use their weapons of mass destruction. Everything leading up to this day, the threats of violence, the white hooded clansmen marching through the streets of Orlando a few days prior, were warning signs of a powder keg ready to explode. All it needed was a spark, and it found one on election day, 1920. Hey folks, this is Troy Herring, and welcome back to Full Circle. In last week's episode, I talked a little bit about the lead-up to the Okoye Massacre of 1920, but now we're diving into the meat of the story and looking at the many, many perspectives that it contains. But before we start, again as a reminder, this story does deal with racial violence and racism, so there's going to be offensive language used in its historical context. And there are going to be some graphic details about said racial violence. The sole purpose of approaching this story in such a way head-on, as I mentioned in the last episode, is to tell it as honestly as possible. With that said, welcome to episode two of our podcast, A Century Removed, Truth and Reconciliation of the 1920 Okoye Massacre. The facts from Election Day 1920 are absolutely muddled at best thanks in part to a variety of factors that include poor record-keeping, racially biased news reports, and the decimation of a people. What Pam Schwartz, chief curator at the Orange County Regional History Center, and her staff found during their three years of research for their exhibit, yesterday this was home, the Okoye Massacre of 1920, were bits and pieces of a story, but not the complete picture. One of the things that is the most dynamic and difficult about this event is that there's so many versions of this story. There's so many faults of memory. There's conjecture. There's intentional obfuscation uh, by, at the hands of you know, white government officials to cover this event up. So we as a staff took 129 accounts of what happened and synthesized them into one major account. And then from there, um, we have inside of the screen, you can actually look at any one of these source citations and see where that information came from. So over 129 versions, and then we took it and we peeled back the layers. Of those 129 sources, the History Center only included the information that could be verified by primary source documentation or that every one of the accounts agreed on. The end result was the following four paragraphs. On November 2, 1920, Mose Norman, a black labor broker, attempted to exercise his legal right to vote in Ocoee, Florida. He was turned away and not allowed to cast his ballot. Later, a group of armed white men came to the home of Norman's friend, July Perry, another black labor broker in Ocoee, and violence ensued. Shots rang out, fires were started, black residents were forced to flee from their homes. Badly injured by bullet wounds, July Perry was captured by some of the armed men and taken into custody. After receiving medical attention, he was left in a cell at the Orange County Jail in downtown Orlando. According to a State of Florida coroner's inquest that took place on November 3rd and 4th of 1920, an unidentified white mob overpowered the jailer, taking Perry from his cell. 
the lynch mob brutalized Perry and by November 3rd had hanged his body in public view. His body was later moved to Greenwood Cemetery and buried. Mose Norman fled. He was eventually recorded living in New York City. Two men from the white mob were shot and killed, Leo Borgard and Elmer McDaniels, for which Carrie Hand Undertaker's memoranda exists. Able-bodied ex-servicemen were called from across the region to come to Okoye to create a perimeter to make sure the event did not continue, also blocking black residents from returning to their homes. An unknown number of black people were killed that night and others injured. Three unidentified black individuals recorded as being buried in one grave in a Carrie Hand Undertaker's memorandum. That night, many black residents fled Okoye, never to return. Some stayed, but were eventually driven out by the terror of that night, as well as the subsequent violence over the following years, including dynamite being thrown into their homes and individuals being beaten and threatened. After 1926, there would not be another recorded black person to reside or own land for any length of time in Okoye until at least the mid to late 1970s. Based on an interview conducted by the Bureau of Investigation of William Blakely, a white man and inspector of elections, 114 ballots in Precinct 10 were cast in Okoye that day. Those include ballots from 27 black individuals, which includes July Perry. But in preparation for the expected attempts by black men to vote, political leaders in the community stationed people at the polls whose sole job was to challenge the vote of any black man trying to vote. And when a vote was challenged, each black individual would have to appear before a local notary public, in this case, Justice of the Peace R.C. Bigelow. The only thing, white leaders had arranged it so Mr. Bigelow could go vote early so he could then conveniently go fishing, which meant challenged black voters had to go all the way to Orlando according to Lester Dabbs' thesis. From what is known, things went smoothly to start the day before the first challenge of a black voter, who Dabbs identified as Norman, though Schwartz wasn't sure, was made at about 11 a.m. due to the individual not having paid his poll tax. Both Dabbs' and Schwartz's accounts said Norman had been placed on the stricken list due to failing to pay his poll tax. When Norman went to the polls in the afternoon, he was turned away. This is when the story begins to really splinter, depending on who you speak with. In Schwartz's account, the white mob made its way to July Perry's home in search of Norman at about 9 p.m. That's where the first shots were fired. The violence continued, and an unknown number of homes and buildings were burned while black residents fled for their lives. But in Dabbs' thesis, he goes into lengthy detail about the events that followed Norman's failed attempt at voting. In this account, Norman returns to his home, picks up a shotgun, and returns to town. When he stopped at Hoyle Pound's garage, a white man, who we don't know, questioned Norman about his weapon, which he told the white man he used to hunt rabbits. When Constable Bernie Cannon discovered the gun was loaded with buckshot, an exchange of vulgarities ensued, and Cannon disarmed Norman and struck him over the head with a revolver. Norman was then permitted to get in his car and leave. 
It was in the afternoon when Clyde Pounds, a deputy sheriff, deputized some 20 men to investigate the trouble at the Perry House, according to Dabbs. However, another source found by Dabbs said it was Sheriff Frank Gordon who came out and deputized the group, while another source said it was just a group of men interested in removing Perry. Quote, Sam Salisbury led the group of men that went to arrest July Perry, Dabbs wrote. Upon answering the knock on his door, lantern in hand, and seeing the white men assembled in his yard, they were actually surrounding the house. July said, Yes, sir, boss. Let me get my coat. As he turned to re-enter the house, Mr. Salisbury grabbed him, and in the forthcoming struggle, pounded him on the head with the butt of an infield rifle as he held him by a neck hold with the other arm. Suddenly, a rifle barrel appeared out from the house and was placed in the abdomen of Mr. Salisbury. Instinctively, the gun was brushed aside, and at that moment, the Negro woman holding the rifle fired, the bullet striking Mr. Salisbury in the right forearm. This shot precipitated a wholesale shooting by both whites and Negroes there assembled, Dabbs wrote. One account of this moment, uncovered by Dabbs, stated that there were 37 armed black men in the Perry house, most of whom escaped through a trap door in the floor and fled into a cane field in the back of the house. It was then, during that shootout, when the two white men, McDaniel and Burgard, suffered their mortal wounds while six others were injured. Meanwhile, another account by a black man involved with the melee and a black woman, who was a local school teacher in Winter Garden, maintained that the only people in the Perry house were Perry, his wife, and his daughter. Dabbs' thesis is fundamental to the understanding of the event by current Ocoee Commissioner George Oliver III, who was elected as the city's first black commissioner in 2018. In Oliver's eyes, the violence of that night was premeditated, and white mobs were looking for a reason to burn the black community to the ground. You have to understand the mentality of the mob at that point, especially from a law enforcement perspective. Sam Salisbury is the chief of police in Orlando who is deputized to raid this house looking for a fugitive from the law. So from their perspective, he has all rights to be there. He's been deputized. I'm already chief of police. She shot me, an officer down in the line of duty. So, so you got to see the perspective of how this, is, how this is looking. So now to them, to that side, it's a riot because an officer of the law was shot while on duty, while serving a warrant or going after a fugitive from the law. How dare them do that? So now you have every excuse you need to do whatever you need to do to eradicate that entire community. Dabbs continued that the injured Perry was the last to leave his home, and he was wounded as he tried to escape into the cane field while his home and barn were set aflame. Word of the violence spread quickly, and members of the Winter Garden in Orlando community began to arrive on the scene. Dabbs writes, quote, News of the riot had been broadcast on a public screen in Orlando, a screen used to disseminate Election Day results and literally hundreds of men flocked to the scene of action, armed to the teeth, and espousing such epithets as, quote, where are the goddamn niggers, unquote, or, quote, I've come to kill a goddamn nigger, unquote, Dabbs writes. 
This white mob made out of Winter Garden and Orlando residents was responsible for the burning of the northern quarters. The homes, churches, and lodges all fell victim to the fury of the white mob. The only building left untouched was the school building, which Dabbs notes was county property, and therefore it was left alone. Meanwhile, the southern quarters were also left undamaged. According to Dabbs' thesis, Perry was arrested by Orange County Sheriff Frank Gordon and taken to the jail by way of the hospital for treatment. Though, despite being seriously wounded, Perry cursed the white men as he was being transported to the jail. Then, at 3.30 a.m. in the morning, he was removed by a white mob of 100 men and hanged from an oak tree at the entrance of the Orlando Country Club. While the notion of such an event happening now would create an outcry of anger from most communities, a quote from the attending surgeon who treated Perry at the jail summed up the lack of sympathy for Perry in the moment. Quote, Perry was expected to die at any moment anyway. Unquote. While Perry's story is the most well-known and has the most detail, others also live on. One such story is that of Richard Allen Franks, whose story is continually told by his daughter Gladys Franks Bell. Richard Allen Franks, who then was age 18, led his six younger siblings through the alligator-infested swamps in the middle of the night to escape the chaos engulfing Akoi on that night in 1920. Richard Franks' brother, Cornell, who suffered from paraplegia, rode on his back on their way to safety to Plymouth, which is where Gladys Franks Bell, 81, still lives to this day. Another story revolves around survivor Valentine Hightower, whose great-grandson, John Peterson, who I spoke with following a memorial event put on by the city in November of this year, recalled the stories told to him by his uncle, Armstrong Hightower, about that day. After the upheaval in the city, the Hightower family fled, possessionless from the area, hiding in orange groves, before eventually making it to Fort Lauderdale. While some, like Richard Franks and Valentine Hightower, made it out alive, not everyone was so lucky. One story that Oliver recalls, one that has seared itself into his memory, is that of a young 10-year-old boy named Josh Smith, whose story is soul-crushing. A 10-year-old boy, just an average kid that lived his life in that time frame, and he would go to school, lived in Okoy with his mom, his sister, and his dad, and he would go to school every day in Okoy, and he had aspirations of being a doctor or a physician one day. He loved school. He would come home every day from school. He would work with his dad out uh, in their uh, vegetable garden or his mom. He would go in the fields with his dad and, and uh, work in the uh, citrus gardens or citrus fields. And um, at the end of the day, um, they would all come in and mom would serve a, a big meal. And um, they would uh, come together as a family and talk about what happened today, you know, and talk about what they're going to do tomorrow or next week or 
Christmas is around the corner, or we got a festival coming up, we're going to celebrate something. And, and, and those are the things that, that he remembered. Joshua remembers those things as this is his daily routine. These are the things he has to look forward to. And one day I'm going to get married, I'm going to have kids, and I'm going to have a family, and I'm going to be a physician, and I'm going to help people around here. But uh, one night in 1920, November 2nd, 1920, he was awakened in the middle of the night by his mom saying, we got to go. By that time, his dad had already been lynched and he was dead. And mom and sister was running out the back door of a burning house and they were stopped by a mob of hooded white men with rifles and they were tied to a post with barbed wire and set on fire. Joshua never had a chance. His sister and his mom never had a chance. They never existed on this earth. The flames sparked by hatred and animosity roared throughout the night, but by morning, many in Ocoee's black community had scattered, taking refuge in the surrounding woods or in the neighboring towns of Winter Garden and Apopka. By the time the fires had been put out and order had been restored by the perimeter of, quote, able-bodied ex-servicemen put into place, unquote, at least four black men and two white men had been killed, according to Schwartz, though other accounts have the death toll as high as 50. The following day, November 3rd, members of the black community came together and asked for permission to bury their dead, which was granted. Only five new graves were dug in the black cemetery, Dabbs writes. And in the papers that day, depending on where you looked, the story was very, very different from what actually transpired that previous night. Keep in mind that most of the newspapers are white, white run and also somewhat racist and biased in nature. Uh, at the time, uh, there are some black publications throughout America that publish and they publish a very different story. Um, I wish I could remember the title of the one black publication, but there's a letter to the editor and it's, it hurts your heart because it's coming from a, a, a black community member, I think in like Kansas or something. And so it's just a very different story. You'll notice even the front headlines claims two white victims. The Ocoee trouble claims two white victims. Never mind the burning of an entire community, the lynching of a black man and the countless murders that may have happened. <laughs> so, I mean, that is the, the Orlando Morning Sentinel here. So it was reported on, but was it reported on accurately or fairly? No way. As far as legal proceedings go, there was an investigation by the Justice Department that had been called for by the National Rights League during its meeting in Boston on November 5th, just a couple of days after the massacre. The department sent three agents down solely for the purpose to seek clarification and not bring charges, Dabbs writes. There was also a grand jury held, but there's no evidence of a copy of that grand jury's report. There are lots of things, actually, that should exist, like the report, that simply don't, Schwartz said. In fact, any effort to bring about any sort of justice proved fruitless.
though accounts differ on specific details, there is one thing that is absolutely certain. By the morning of November 3rd, the black community in Ekoi had changed dramatically, and it would take decades for it to recover. In next week's episode of A Century Removed, Truth and Reconciliation of the 1920 Ekoi Massacre, we'll examine the after effects of the massacre and how for decades the city became a well-known sundown town. And I'd like to take a quick minute to thank the Orlando Regional History Center and Pam Schwartz, the late Lester Dabbs, and Commissioner Oliver for their wealth of knowledge and for helping me explore this important moment of local history. Until next time, I'm Troy Herring, and this is Full Circle.